Well, it's good to see so many here come together to worship the Lord. You know, there are lots of places we could be this morning, but there's not anywhere better than being with God's family to spend time in prayer, spend time in song, spend time encouraging one another and, and uh, sharing from God's word together. And I do appreciate each of you being here. You know, we have certain phrases that we say and, and, you know, if you're not necessarily the preacher, it may not apply to you. You know, but, but, but when Vaughn says the song of encouragement after Tim's lesson, you know, you just kind of think about that. Yeah, it took some of y'all a little while, okay? You know, I understand what he means, but there's another way that could be taken. But we're going to assume that's not the way he meant it. But we have been in the uh, book of First Peter for quite some time. I, I challenge y'all, if any of y'all last week, if any of y'all knew how many lessons we had done in First Peter, and uh, I'll just come out and tell you now, today's lesson will be number 22. Whoa, yeah, that's what you're thinking. You're thinking, you know, it only takes two and a half minutes or three minutes to read the whole book. And, uh, you know, we've done 20, now doing 22 lessons on it. But it's a very impactful book in our lives. We've been looking at it, and I've heard me 22 weeks now over and over again talk about that it's Peter's guide to foreigners in the world. Uh, how he talks about that we're strangers, that our citizenship is in heaven, that we are just pilgrims here. We're wanderers. This world is not my home or our home, those songs that we sing. And it's kind of a guidebook as, okay, if we're, if we're strangers here, how do we make it through this world? And that's really what this letter is about. And last week we talked about arming ourselves. Uh, those of you that were here last week and then went to the small group, the family life group on Sunday night, I did have a report back that, that one of the family life group members asked their group, said, uh, well, what did you get out of Tim's lesson this morning? And the person, the only reply they got was there was something wrong with his contacts. So, you know, that's okay too. But this week we're going to look at just one verse out of 1 Peter. And that is chapter 4 and verse 7, where Peter writes, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. You know, when we read through the New Testament, we have a lot of these first and second books. You know, first and second Corinthians. First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, you know, all of these. And a lot of times what we find out is when we read the second book or letter, they were letters, when we read the second letter, we find out that a lot of times the second letter was written to expand upon or correct some things that were misunderstood from the first letter. For example, in 1 Corinthians, you remember that Paul talked about the man who was living with his father's wife. And Paul very bluntly said, you need to get rid of him. You need to kick him out. If he's going to continue to live that way, blatantly immoral life before the church and before everybody else, you need to get rid of him. Well, then he has to write back in 2 Corinthians. 
Because apparently this man has repented. And he's given up that lifestyle. And he's come back to the church. And the church isn't willing to receive him back. And so Paul has to write and say, whoa, 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 whoa. You, you misunderstood the point of what I said in my first letter. The point in the first letter was not to condemn him or punish him. The point of what I said in the first letter was to get him to realize the seriousness of what he was doing so that he would come back. Now that he has come back, take him back as a brother. First Thessalonians, Paul writes about end time things like we're talking about here. Jesus was going to come back and the end was near. Well, he has to write in 2 Thessalonians because apparently some of the people misunderstood and had this idea that the return of Jesus was so imminent that they quit everything. They quit work. They quit, you know, it was almost as if they were just sitting up on top of their house just waiting for Jesus to come back. And Paul had to write and say, whoa, 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 whoa. no, 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 no. He is coming back, but we got to continue to do things. We got to continue to work and live for the Lord and, and do all these different things and, and, and things like that. So here in first Peter, Peter says the end of all things is near. And then he goes back and we look at second Peter. If you have your Bibles, turn to second Peter, because that's really where we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning. In 2 Peter chapter 3, the first 13 verses, he expands upon this idea of the end of all things is near. Uh, it was almost as if they got this letter and they were confused, they didn't understand or whatever. And so now he's writing in the second letter and says, okay, let me explain a little more about what I said in the first letter. So beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3 of 2 Peter. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I've written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. First of all, you must be, you, first of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is the coming? He promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's words, the heaven existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. And by these waters, also the world at that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word that present heavens and earth, the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven 
and a new earth, the home of the righteous. You know, many, there are many teachings and theories about the second coming, about the end of the world, about what's going to happen and when it's going to happen. And, and, you know, if you lived long enough, you've seen those people who have made these predictions that the world is going to end on this particular day. And we've seen, I've seen in my lifetime, groups of people, large groups of people just, just set out on a hillside and, and just wait because their prophet or their understanding of the teaching told them that Jesus was coming back, the world was going to end on this particular day. How many times have we seen that over and over and over again to no avail? We see a lot of different things being taught. I have, and I, it, it's one of those things that, that is so profound that I know I didn't come up with it. But I really can't remember where I got it. I don't remember in all my studying at Harding and, and other places, I don't remember ever hearing it put this way. But there is a principle of biblical study that I use. And it goes something like this. You interpret the hard to understand in light of the clear and easy to understand. And what I mean by that is, is if you have a scripture that is really confusing, that you're really not sure exactly what it means. Are there some scriptures like that? Yeah. There's lots of them that are like that. And so I want to try to make sense out of that scripture. I want to try to make sense out of what that's saying. I'm going to do it in light of or in the context of those teachings that are pretty plain and clear within the Bible. In other words, if the Bible clearly says this, then my understanding of this has got to be at least in part Something that is going to fit in with this and not contradict this. And one of the things, the reason I say that when it comes to this talking about the, the end times and, and the day of the Lord and, and all those things is because there is a lot in the book of Revelation. Well, there's actually not a lot. There's a little in the book of Revelation that, well, there's a lot. Let me, let me think through this a minute. There is a lot in the book of Revelation that's difficult to understand and interpret. Some of it has to do with the end time things and and what's going to happen. And because of all the uh, analogy and because of all the uh, prophetic, you know, symbolism that we see in the book of Revelation, a lot of it is difficult to understand. So whatever I'm going to or however I'm going to interpret those things that are difficult, I'm going to interpret in light of what seems clear in other parts of the scripture. And I only say that to say this because I think there's some things here in 2 Peter when he talks about the end of times, when he talks about the day of the Lord, the coming of the Lord, that are pretty clear. And so I want to look at those this morning. First of all, Peter tells us when it comes to the end of time and, and the day of the Lord, first of all, it will happen. Peter reminds his readers of the importance of the Old Testament teachings as well as the new. 
The Old Testament serves us. Some people would even say, why do we bother studying the Old Testament? You know, we're under the new covenant. The New Testament is the new covenant. The New Testament is what teaches us about Jesus and how to be saved and all that. Why do we even bother studying the Old Testament? Well, there's lots of reasons why we study the Old Testament. One is we study the Old Testament because it gives us insight into God's nature. Some people say that almost as if there is a different God in the Old Testament than there is in the New Testament. But if you really read the Old Testament and you really listen for how God dealt with his people, it's not any different than how he deals with us. And that's one of the reasons I believe that he wants us to read the Old Testament. It helps us to understand God's plan. We did that whole the story thing. Beginning Genesis 1-1, going all the way to the end of Revelation to see how it all fits together. But the Old Testament, the old prophecies that Peter reminds the people here of, is that it also reminds us of God's faithfulness to fulfill his promises. In the context of what we just read, that's what Peter wanted his readers to remember. Because he's going to talk, you know, he did just in a, just down a little bit about, you know, how it hasn't happened yet. And with God, a day is a thousand years and a thousand years. He's going to talk about all that. But he says, I want you to remember from what you read in the old, from the old prophets, God keeps his promises. Whether it's Noah, who spent 120 years building the ark. But eventually God kept his promise. Whether it was Abraham, and we went and we studied the whole you know, life of Abraham. God says, I'm going to bless you. You know, you're going to have descendants and, and, and all the people are going to be blessed through you. And, and it took 25 years for Abraham to have a son. He says, this land that you are in now as a stranger, as a foreigner, one of these days, this land is going to be your descendants. They're going to take care of it. I mean, they're going to inherit it. A thousand years, almost before that takes place. When God says to Abraham, that all the nations of the world will be blessed through your seed, almost 2,000 years. Before the coming of Jesus. But it happened. Over and over again. God promises Israel the thing that they will enter into the promised land. It took a while. God through the prophets prophesied about the coming of the Messiah. It took a while. But it happened. That's the main thing to remember. Jesus promised his disciples that he was going to come and take them to be with him. We love those verses, don't we, in John chapter 14? Don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms or many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again so that I may take you with me to be where I am. And you know, he said, you know the way we're going. And Thomas says, whoa, whoa, whoa. (laughs) Thomas says, Lord, we are so confused. 
We so do not understand a word of what you just said. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. He said, we don't even know where you're going. So how can we know the way? You talk about you're going to prepare a place for us. What's that about? We don't even understand where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place. And if I prepare a place, I am coming back to take you with me. So where I am, you may be also. Acts chapter 1, this is it. This is it. You know, we read John 13 through 17. And that is Jesus in the upper room with his disciples. And we kind of think of that, you know, as the farewell. Well, that was the farewell. Now in Acts chapter 1, Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's been on the earth for, you know, 40 days or whatever it was. And now he's ready. Now he's ready to ascend for good into heaven. And he's on the mountain with his disciples. And Jesus tells them, you know, you will be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, uh, and Jerusalem, and all the parts of the world. Wait in Jerusalem to receive the power from on high. And then Jesus is taken up from them and rises up into the clouds. And you can just see them. I can just imagine. They're just, they're just staring up as they see him go. I've never been to a... a an Apollo or a, a NASA launch. Anybody in here have been to a NASA launch? All right, we got one. Cool. I can only imagine that if I was there at a NASA launch, I would be staring forever and ever and ever. And you see that rock and it gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And I'd just be staring, staring. And, and even probably when it had gone out of my sight, in my mind, I, think, I, think I can still see it. I think I can still see it. And this is what I believe was happening in Acts chapter 1. As Jesus is ascending into heaven, as he's leaving from their sight, they're staring up and they're looking intently, they said. And then two men dressed in white came and said, why are you staring up into the sky? Why are you still looking up there? This Jesus whom you saw go up is coming back again. You need to get to work. Again, a paraphrase. You need to quit staring up in the sky. You need to get to work because he's coming back. Now, we can ask ourselves this morning, kind of, the promise of Jesus coming back. Is that a blessing or a curse? Kind of depends on which side of the fence we're sitting on at the time, right? There can be no doubt that there is a time when Jesus will return, when the earth will be destroyed, and judgment comes to everyone. Peter says, it's coming. It's coming. The second thing he tells us is, is that there will be scoffers. I like that word. That's one of those words. Or scoffers, 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 whatever, however you want to pronounce it. I like that word. Don't use it very much. But I looked it up. Shock found out that a scoffer is somebody who takes lightly what should be taken seriously. And I was thinking about that. Every year, I don't know how many people, but several people are injured in Major League Baseball parks by foul balls. Every year. And you know, 
On the back of any ticket, you go to a Rangers game. You go to a minor league ball game. And on the back of every ticket, there is going to be a disclaimer. And that disclaimer is going to say, you might get hit with a flying object. You might get hit with a foul ball. And we, the Texas Rangers, are not responsible. (laughs) We got lots of lawyers who tell us we are not responsible. Now, I go to baseball games. I don't ever really take that seriously. I scoff at it a little bit. Now, there's always the hope that a pop fly foul ball will come by way and I'll catch it. But I never really think about the idea that a line drive foul ball might come and knock me in the head. I don't think much about that. And I was watching last year, you know, we have the new phenomena. I say new, it's been around for quite a while, but you know, the cell phone thing. And I was watching SportsCenter last year and they 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 were showing a compilation of a whole bunch of people getting hit with foul balls. And they were showing all the ones who were on their cell phones at the time they got hit with the foul ball. paying attention they didn't take seriously the warning that had been provided why not probably because they had been to hundreds like myself perhaps hundreds of baseball games and never got hit with a foul ball so what are the chances I'm going to get hit you know this time it reminded me also a little bit of those who disregarded the Katrina warnings And it didn't matter whether it was the lowliest person on the ninth ward or whether it was people in the local state and federal government. Nobody took it seriously. Nobody really thought that what happened could happen. Why not? Because they had been warned over and over and over and over again and nothing happened. There is no telling how many times a hurricane forecasters over the last hundred years has said, this is the big one. You better watch it. It's going to destroy New Orleans. You better get out of there. False alarm, false alarm, false alarm. And so when it really came, I'm not talking about the people who could not get out. I'm talking to the people who chose not to get out. Because they'd heard it over and over and over again. And scoffed at it, in a sense. We've heard it all before. It's been over 2,000 years and nothing. And I like what Peter says about these scoffers when he says they deliberately forget. They deliberately forget about the promises that God has fulfilled back in the other times. And they deliberately forget because they want to continue to live the way That they're living. If they have to come to grips with the fact that yes, Jesus is coming back. That yes, there is going to be a judgment. Then I'm going to change my life. I'm going to have lived differently. So it's more convenient to just say, eh, he's not coming back. He hasn't come back so far. And I think it's interesting that, I don't know, 30 years maybe. I'm not, I didn't really totally look up the date of 2 Peter, but 
you know, let's just say somewhere around there, 30 years after Jesus uh, was, was on earth, 30 years there's already scoffers. Already those saying, well, he's promised he's coming, but he ain't here yet. You know, it hadn't happened yet. If there were scoffers then, what about now? 2,000 years later, they're scoffers. We would never call ourselves, I don't believe anybody in here would call ourselves scoffers. But do we live our lives or do our lives say differently? I put down here, are we closet scoffers? I think about, again, I'll go back to, I think it was a couple weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago. The missile threat in Hawaii. Can you imagine if you had been there? Can you imagine if that had gone off on your phone? Your phone goes off and you read it and it says there is an incoming missile. This is not a test. What would be the most important thing to you in that moment? I, I love the pictures. It, it, it turned out to be comical. But I love the, 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 the video of the man trying to put his children down the sewer drain to protect them. Isn't that what we as parents would do? I mean, that's ridiculous. It's not going to work, even if, you know, that wouldn't work. But the idea is I've got to do something to try and protect my children. I've got to do something to save my children. I've got, you know, 15 minutes or whatever. I'm going to put them down the sewer drain. I think about, and I've listened to and read, the messages left by people on 9-11. Some from the planes who got their loved one's voicemail. Just said, I love you. I'm going down. Others from people in the buildings who were above the fire and knew they weren't going to get out. And left messages to the people they loved. What would matter the most if you knew you only had a few minutes? You see, as Christians, we need to live our lives with that expectancy. You see, the early church had it. They believed any minute Jesus was coming back. And the truth was, any minute he could have. But we ought to have no less expectancy than they did. And we ought to be living our lives in such a way. Living holy lives prepared to face God. Urgent lives reaching out to others with the gospel message. If that message came. Don't you imagine there were a whole bunch of people telling others who didn't get it on their phone. There's a missile coming. There's a missile coming. I don't think any of us would just walk by somebody and not bother to tell them. You know, we wouldn't do that. We're better people than that. Jesus is coming. And we have what can save people. 
in the gospel. And we need to have an urgency to share that with them. We must not get caught living lives of scoffers. Thirdly, we see that God is patient. Peter also reminds us that the time is of little consequence to God. The time is of little consequence to God. It says to God, a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years like a day. And we may ask the question, why? Why hasn't God brought an end to it all yet? You know what? In Revelation, there's that scene where the souls under the altar are asking the same question. How long? How long are you going to wait? He hasn't brought it all to an end yet because he is patient, wanting as many as possible to be saved. He was patient in the days of Noah. Do you think it had to... Excuse me. Do you think it had to take Noah 120 years to build the ark? Do you think God could have helped him do it in five days? Do you think God could have just poofed and there'd be an ark? But it took 120 years to build the ark. Why? Because God was patient. God was still patient with the people. Against all odds, he was hoping that more righteous would be found. In the days of Nineveh, God sends Jonah to Nineveh and says, I'm going to destroy you unless you repent. I'm being patient. And that's what Jonah hated about the whole situation, wasn't it? Jonah hated the fact that God was going to be patient with Nineveh. And he was. He relented. Eventually his patience ran out on Nineveh. With Israel and Judah, God was patient. Sending prophet after prophet after prophet. Saying, if you don't straighten up, I'm going to bring an end to the kingdom. If you don't straighten up, I'm going to use these wicked countries to bring judgment on you. And he was patient and patient. And eventually his patience ran out and Israel was destroyed. And he was patient and patient. And eventually his patience ran out and Judah was taken into captivity. I do not know the date that he will end it all. But I do think, I do presume a little bit to know the conditions that will bring it about. When evil threatens to overcome good, when the evil in the world threatens to overcome Good. When God gives up hope, not even so much as judgment, but salvation of the righteous, I believe that's when God will end it all. Now, we be careful, be careful, because we can look around. And we can say, evil 
is winning. How bad can it get? Look at what is happening in the world. But that is a very, and I don't know if I made this word up or not, that is a very America-centric view. Meaning, that is a view looking at the world only through the eyes of America. Our society is getting worse. Our society is getting less God following. But that's not so in other parts of the world. There are other parts of the world that are open to the gospel. Where thousands of souls are being saved. Where people are dying to hear the gospel message. And as long as that is going on in the world, God will continue, I believe, to allow the world to go on. It may be, God forbid, but it may be the demise of our country as we know it. But there are others out there where the gospel and the church is growing. And God is going to be patient. He's going to be patient. He's going to be patient until that time that it looks as if evil will ultimately overcome the world here. You understand God ultimately overcomes. But the world, Satan, when it looks like evil is going to overcome the world, then I believe that's when God is going to say enough is enough. I've been patient as long as I can. And he's going to end it all and bring justice. As long, there may be darkness looming here. But the light is being revealed elsewhere. And fourthly, real quickly, there is a therefore. Almost all the teachings about the end of time are followed by therefore admonitions. First Peter, the end of time is near, so or therefore do this. Second Peter, what kind of lives ought you to live because of this? But I like what Paul has to say in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Beginning in verse 13. Speaking on the same subject. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we are telling you that we who are still alive, who are left of the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up with them in the cloud to meet the Lord. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Peter seems to be using the thought of the end of time as a warning. Paul seems to be using it as an encouragement. Both are legitimate. Both have a place. Both are important. You know, I was looking in our songbook for a particular song. And I was thinking to myself, you know, we haven't sung this song in a really long time. And I found out why we haven't sung this song in a really long time. You want to know why? It's not in the book. (laughs) 
Well, find an old book. Some of you will remember the words to this song. There's a great day coming. A great day coming. There's a great day coming by and by. When the saints and the sinners shall be parted right and left, are you ready for that day to come? There's a bright day coming. A bright day coming. There's a bright day coming by and by. But its brightness shall only come to them that love the Lord. Are you ready for that day to come? There's a sad day coming. A sad day coming. There's a sad day coming by and by. When the sinner shall hear his doom, depart I know ye not. Are you ready for that day to come? We might not... There may be a part of us that that just doesn't like that. But you know, Jesus talked about there's going to be some of those days depart. I never knew you. That day is coming. For us, we encourage each other with those words. Jesus is coming. Are you ready? Jesus is coming. Are you glad about it? We ought to be. We ought to be expectant. But for those who are lost, it will be a dark and sad day. And so we live our lives waiting for that day to come. If you're here this morning, we help encourage you. We invite you to come now as we stand and sing. We hope by listening to this lesson, you have found a better understanding of the Bible. And through that better understanding, find a closer relationship with God and His Son, Jesus Christ, our living Savior. If you have any questions or desire more information, please feel free to contact us here at the Dangerfield, Texas Church of Christ. You can find us at dfield.org. That's D-F-I-E-L-D-C-O-C dot O-R-G. Or you can email at dfieldcoc779 at aol.com. Or you can call us at 903-645-2896. If you are local to the Dangerfield area, we would love an opportunity to meet you and encourage you in person at 818 West W.M. Watson Boulevard, Dangerfield, Texas, 75638. Our meeting times are Sunday mornings at 9.30 a.m. for Bible class and 10.30 a.m. for worship service, Sunday evening at 6 p.m. for worship service, and Wednesday evening at 6.30 p.m. for our midweek Bible class. Grace and peace be with you always.